This is Setting the Table, a podcast from the Table Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Little Rock. I'm Steve Schubert. Welcome to our podcast. Today we're discussing the story of Lot, the nephew of Abraham. We're talking about this story in a different way, through the eyes of justice and mercy. Here's our senior pastor, Michael Gallup. So we are, as I'm sure you're aware, uh, knee-deep, waist-deep even, in the midst of a Genesis uh, series. We started back at Easter, the week after Easter. We've been kind of working our way through the story and really the core, and just as a reminder, because I think we've been talking about Abraham so long we might have forgot, like, why did we start doing this all over anyway? Uh, the point was we were thinking about the season of Easter, which is uh, this, this feast, this time of celebration where we remember not just the resurrection, but what it means and what it means particularly as a new creation, that God was doing something new in Jesus and through Jesus, and primarily that new thing was creation. He was, as the scriptures say, making all things new. And so tied with that realization was well, we need to kind of understand the first creation, what God was doing in the beginning so that we can understand what he's doing now and is about to do. And so with that context, we've been working through the story of Genesis with an eye towards what it means for us today, what does it mean for what Jesus has done and will do, and to understand the God who is creator. And so we are coming close to the end of the Abraham portion of the scriptures, of this narrative. And uh, we come to probably one of the more difficult passages in our Bibles today, which is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And I wanted to open with this thought and this question. Well, I said I did. There it is. Have you ever celebrated or felt satisfied at another's death? And this is rhetorical, um, but I want to ask that again. Have you ever celebrated? or even felt satisfied at another person's death. Um, I began to think through that question and some of the uh, kind of big things would pop up in my head and I at least would remember um, like a collective celebration at times in our country. When uh, Osama bin Laden, for instance, was killed. But I don't know about you, but I had this kind of weird feeling. It, I did have this sense that maybe some level of justice was served, right? I mean, in some way this person orchestrated the murder of thousands of people, innocent people. And, and so there was a part of me that felt like, good, justice is served. Yet there's also a part of me that felt kind of odd at the celebration around it. That, that despite the sense that justice was served, that something was still fundamentally broken and wrong. Like this didn't fix anything. That maybe this was what should have been done, but I'm not really sure that it really provided much in the way of healing. I mean, if you think about it in some ways, this, it's kind of a rare phenomenon. It takes a figure like an Osama bin Laden, who's this kind of vilified, larger-than-life character, for, to see a, a group of people, a collective group of people, be willing to celebrate over their deaths. I mean, to borrow the old cliche, to dance on their graves. 
And that statement was used to talk about someone who was completely and utterly out of line. <laughs> they were doing something that was unthinkable, unconscionable, was to dance on another's grave. I mean, I, th- I think we see this at times even at funerals, uh, perhaps with someone we love or maybe in more often the case, someone we didn't love. But through maybe family obligation or connection, we kind of still show up. And you have this thought that this person maybe in many ways was miserable, was a person that caused a lot of pain and trauma in their life. And no one ever talks about it. We're at the funeral and we say nice things, memorialize, because that's what you do. You don't think about the bad, you just focus on the good. Why do you think that is? There's not a lot of healing necessarily at times in kind of rehashing uh, the trauma or abuse that we may have experienced when this person is gone. One thought that I have uh, is that it's kind of petty. It's kind of unfair. I mean, in a sense, this person is, in effect, gone. And so to, you know, ridicule them or to make fun of them, it it doesn't really affect that person. It doesn't have any sort of uh, capacity to change them, obviously. And above all, there's no sense of defense from that person. It just, it feels like they've they've already gotten what they deserve. And so when people do celebrate over the death of others, it is it's unnerving. It's really upsetting. And I think one of the prime examples of this is what we saw out of the Westboro Baptist Church in recent years. You guys may or may not recall, uh, there were, their founding pastor, Fred Phelps, would lead them to funerals often of soldiers or people who were known uh, to be openly gay or lesbian or along those lines and they would picket their funerals. They would show up with signs and would chant things uh, as vulgar as God hates fags. I mean, that statement in and of itself like turns my stomach. Imagine hearing that at your child's funeral. In fact, they came to notoriety because of the work they did at Matthew Shepard's funeral. If you guys recall, Matthew Shepard was a young man from uh, Casper, Wyoming, who was beaten and tortured and murdered because he was gay. And Fred Phelps led his group of people from Kansas to carry their signs in the chant that God hates Matthew Shepard as he laid in the grave. This is ugly, and this is awful. And I think it does something deep within us Uh, It speaks to our sense of justice, but I think it also speaks to our sense of compassion. And I want to carry those two ideas, compassion and justice, in our mind today as we look into this story of the Sodom and Gomorrah. So as we're reading this text, uh, we're going to still continue to rely into and lean into uh, the techniques that we've been using all along, primarily which is to pay attention to these narrative structures. Remember, we've talked about the fact that Genesis is an ancient Near Eastern text. And so it kind of does things a little differently from what maybe we would expect a story written in contemporary times to do. Uh, One of the things that's happening here in this text is that there's this parallelism. Now, this is a famous kind of Hebrew uh, narrative device where two things are laid beside each other, almost kind of identical, and yet maybe some nuance of difference or some contrast is there to illustrate and make a theological point. And in this story, in chapter 18 and 19, the things that are paralleled are Abraham and Lot. 
Now, to give us a little bit of context so that we can look at this parallel and this contrast, if you guys remember, who is Lot? He is Abraham's nephew. And really, up until the birth of Ishmael, he's the only biological heir that Abraham has had. He goes with Abraham when he goes to the promised land. He's journeys with him, and it seemed uh, like perhaps maybe he would be this promised son that God tells Abraham about, makes covenant with him that through his seed all the nations would be blessed. You know, as we recall, Abraham and Sarah are unable to have children. They're advanced and aged. And so Abraham often, I think, would look to Lot as perhaps be the one who would fulfill that promise. Yet if you recall in chapter 13, they have a falling out. They have too many possessions. Their people are fighting with each other, and they split. And in chapter 13, it tells us Lot goes to the cities of the plains, most notably Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot will appear again in the next chapter. He's captured along with other people in Sodom. There's some sort of war that's going on, and he's taken hostage. And Lot, or excuse me, Abraham, gathers together an army, gets a group of people together, and goes on this Calvary rescue and saves Lot from captivity. I mean, this is his nephew. This is blood. His, his, he loves him. He's his family member. And despite the fact that they split and he's gone, Abram has come to rescue him, to save him. And so that's the last we hear of Lot until we get to this point. Ishmael's been born. We've seen the sign of the covenant through circumcision. God, as the three strangers, have appeared to Abraham and have reiterated the promise and even have given a date that a son would be born to Abraham and Sarah, and his name would be Isaac. And it would happen in one year. And so with all of that context, we come to our story today, and we begin to see this comparison and contrast between Abraham, who in some ways has been the hero of our story, and Lot, who has been, been a bit of an... He's had a rough go. You know, he's made some mistakes, he's done some silly things, and he's found himself uh, in a desperate place in Sodom. So there are two really main ways that, that's four, there's two ways in which this story contrasts these uh, two characters. And the first is uh, one that wasn't in our scripture reading today, but they both entertain this group of strangers. So if you guys were here last week, we talked a bit about this experience that Abraham and Sarah had that these three strangers appeared to them and they welcomed them into their home. They were hospitable to them. But what was really unique and interesting about these three strangers were they, in some way, were the appearance of the Lord. So these three were the Lord. So Abraham has an experience with them. He welcomes them in. He's hospitable to them. He goes and kills the fatted calf for them. He makes them at home. Well, after uh, Abraham's encounter with them, they go down into Sodom. Two of them, it, it's kind of unclear where the third one goes, perhaps to Gomorrah as well. But they go down to Sodom and they there encounter Lot. So I'll read from our passage in 19. It says, The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. He said, Please, my lords, turn aside to your servant's house. And spend the night and wash your feet. And then you can rise early and go on your way. And they said, no, we will spend our night in the square. But he urged them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded their house. And they called a lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? 
bring them out to us so that we may know them. Lot went out of the door to the men and shut the door after them and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Look, I have two daughters. Uh, I have not known a man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they replied to stand back. And they said, this fellow, came here, this, this fellow came here as an alien, and he would play the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near the door to break it down. But the men inside reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the, with blindness the men who were at the door of the house, both small and great, so that they were unable to find the door. This is a shocking passage a lot of levels. Before we get into the more shocking aspects of it, I want us to first pay attention to Lot's acts of hospitality. Again, we're, we're comparing him and contrasting him with Abraham. Uh, the, the narrator, the writer, is really begging us to do this, to look into this, because he uses almost verbatim the same language. Lot sees this man, and what does he do? He falls on his face. He bows down before them, just like Abraham did. He says, my lords, and although it's plural here, still the exclamation is still the same. Abraham said, my Lord. He invites them into his home, and while it takes a little bit for them to get there, he prepares them a feast, he washes their feast, and he offers them refuge, just like Abraham did. In no way, shape, or form is Lot a lesser host than Abraham was. We talked about it last week. Abraham was the penultimate hospitality person. He was so good at what he did. He was a great host. He welcomed them in, and he made these strangers into his own family. And that really is at the core of hospitality, is this transformation of relationship from stranger into neighbor, from potential enemy into friend, into the other, from the other into family. And that's exactly what we see happening here with Lot. One of the key differences, context. While with Abraham, there's this scene, it almost kind of reminds us of the Garden of Eden. There's oak trees, and people are hanging out in the trees, and it's, they have the, the farm scene that's happening. Sarah's there, she's preparing things in the back. It almost has this sort of uh, ancient Near Eastern equivalent of like a Norman Rockwell painting. Just everything is as it should be. And yet here in Sodom, it's a complete opposite. It is darkness, and it is chaos. I think in some ways the angels, uh, these two men, they, they're kind of testing out Lot, or they're testing out the city. They say they refuse the initial invitation of hospitality, and they say they want to stay in the square, and you see in Lot his deep concern. You don't want to do that. That's a bad idea. Please, please come to my home. Lot knows. Lot knows that this isn't just a potential threat that they face in the city, but an actual one. And if they don't get to his home and under his protection, then they may not make it through the night. We see that his worries are well-founded when the people of the city, and again, I think the author says it was all the way down, all the people down to the last man. This great sense of hyperbole to show just how pervasive the wickedness of the city is. Come knocking on his door wanting to take knowledge of these men. That's what the Hebrew says. They want to take the knowledge. Obviously, we know that that's a euphemism for sex, but more than that, put it together with the word take, it's a euphemism for rape. But it also recalls to us, again, what the author of Genesis has told us in Genesis 
chapter 3, where Eve herself took knowledge from the tree, knowledge of the good, knowledge of evil. And so in some ways, that, that same initial disobedience, that same initial fall, that same initial disorder is on display here. Obviously way bigger, way more intense with the people of Sodom seeking to sexually assault these strangers. Now, there's something really weird that happens, obviously. Lot offers them his daughters. This is a tremendously challenging piece of Scripture. I think in some ways, uh, there's a couple ways to look at this. Uh, At worst, Lot is being really, has kind of a perverse sense of kindness. Not towards his daughters, obviously, but towards these strangers. Now, if you remember, the act of hospitality was an act of transformation. And so when a person came into your home, they were no longer a stranger. They were no longer an other. They were no longer a potential threat. They were a part of your family. The actual hospitality codes of the ancient Near East was that you were to offer the same protection to your guests as you would to your children. And so in some way, Abraham's trying to protect these uh, strangers and these men in his midst as if they were his own kids. Obviously, that doesn't quite jive with how he seemingly is treating his own kids. But one scholar, or several scholars, see this being read another way, that this offer could be read as sarcasm. It's like if a mortgage company called you and you said, why don't you just take the clothes off my children's backs and the food off their plates? He's being sarcastic. He's saying, oh, you want to take my strangers? You want to take these people who have come into my care and into my family that I've offered hospitality to? Well, why don't you just go ahead and violate my daughters too? And this act of sarcasm was meant to prick their conscience, to awaken them to the evil of their demands. Do you see what you're asking of me? It's like if you were to take my daughters, if you were to take these men. And yet, yet they persist. And it takes a supernatural intervention of these men who are the appearance of the Lord to Lot to fend off these perpetrators. So that was the beginning of our comparison and contrast. Abraham and Lot, similar in that they're exemplary hosts. They're showing the hospitality to these strangers. In no way is Lot lesser than Abraham in this story, but the context of his city is. But the other place, and I think the more interesting place overall, to compare and contrast Lot and Abraham is their plea to God for salvation. These were the scriptures that Leanne read for us this morning. Um, I want to have a little bit of discussion here, so let's look at those uh, passages that we looked at this morning. Um, So Abraham has this discussion with the presence of the Lord. So this is right after he's hosted them. They leave his city, or leave his camp, and are going to descend down into Sodom and Gomorrah. And on the way there, God speaks to Abraham and begins to reveal to him his plan, which is he's going down there to see if the outcries for justice against Sodom and Gomorrah are warranted. His potential destruction of the city is at play here, and he's going down to see if he should carry it out. But he shares it with Abraham, and what's really interesting in the narrative is it seems to be that God does so to invite Abraham to plead for the city. He's not just telling him his plan. He wants Abraham to take this opportunity to live into his role as the patriarch of a family through which the entire earth will be blessed. Remember there was the promise that all families of the earth will be blessed through you. So God turns to Abraham and says, 
What do you think about my plan? Kind of like a father would to a child, listening, trying to call him out to invite him into a time of growth, a time to learn. What does Abraham do? It says he remains standing before the Lord. And uh, so just any, any uh, just popcorn, let me hear what you say. What is, how does Abraham respond to God's plan? Yeah, he bargains. Definitely. I mean, it's kind of like a courtroom scene. You know, he, he is really appealing to God's sense of justice, right? He goes, is it just for you to destroy the righteous along with the wicked? So how does this bargain go? How do, I, we cut out a little bit because uh, um, it just was very repetitive. But he starts at 50, then he goes to 45, and then the 40, and he kind of works his way down to 10. And at each instance, he pleads with God. You know, don't be angry at me, but what if there's 15 righteous people in the city? Would you still destroy it? Now, compare that to what Lot is doing. How does Lot speak to God? And this was the second scripture that Leanne read this morning. How does he plea to the Lord? Bargains? Yeah, I mean, he, yeah, absolutely. He, uh, who's he bargaining for there? Himself. Himself, yeah. Who's Abraham bargaining for? The righteous. The righteous. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. I mean, Lot, Lot's not, even though he's an exemplary host, he's a problematic character. Again, we've interpreted that one part about his daughters. That's a best-case scenario. It's, it's probably more likely that he's really doing something kind of demented. Uh, he's been, in some ways, influenced by this city. When he splits from Abraham in chapter 13, it says three times in the narration that Sodom was full of sin and was a wicked place. And so the, the author's trying to let you know that Lot made a really bad choice there. And, uh, and yet, there's something really interesting, is that Lot seems to be a little bit more just bear with God, raw, if you will. Abraham is very official, very kind of courtly, and he's like, Lord, if you will, please do not get angry with me. May I ask you a question? And he appeals to his justice. And while Lot isn't, you know, uh, dishonoring or disrespectful, he's just saying, please save me. I, I can't do that. The, the angels are telling him to flee to the mountains, and Lot just says, I can't do that. Can I go to Zoar instead? One interesting and fascinating difference between these two accounts. Who succeeds at saving a city? Lot or Abraham? Lot. Lot. Sodom and Gomorrah are utterly destroyed. Zoar was one of the cities of the plains, and it was intended to be destroyed. But God says to him, very well, I will grant this request to you. I will not overthrow the town you speak of. All of a sudden, I think all of our ideas and expectations are totally blown up. I mean, I, I've been dealing with this for like a couple of weeks now. I'm like, what is happening here? Why is it Lot who gets not really even what he asked for? I mean, he does. He just wants to be saved. He, he's not actually pleading on Zoar's behalf. He just wants to save his own hide. And yet, Zoar is saved through his plea. Abraham, who's pleading on behalf of the righteous, finds the city 
destroyed. Why? Something, as I began to ponder that and to look into that, finally came to the surface. It struck me that this is exactly what was going on. Uh, again, we, we, we pay attention. The, the author says, this is a shocking detail. And so you almost have to stop and rehash. Like, what happened? And so you go begin to look at what exactly were they saying? What exactly were they asking for? Something that's unfortunately lost to us in our English translations is the use of a single word that they both use many times, and that is the word we often is translated please or now. It's the Hebrew word na. Uh, sometimes it's not translated at all. But it is a special word that would be added to a request, like please or now, to kind of up the ante, to say this is really important to me. This is what I'm begging you. I'm pleading with you. Abraham uses it in his plea with God uh, several times. Lot uses it six times, in fact. And in each instance in the story of Abraham, his pleas, his now is an appeal to justice. So remember, what is he pleading for? He's pleading for the sake of the righteous. He's appealing to God's sense of justice. Would the God of the universe do what is just? That's what he asks of him. He appeals to his sense of justice. He's not caring about the wicked. He doesn't care about their destruction. And in fact, the narration drives that home very clearly Later, as we see Abraham standing on the rim of the valley, looking down on the destruction. In fact, I think one interesting note uh, is that in this time, in this story, Abraham doesn't mention anything at all about his nephew. Not once does he say, God, well, what about Lot? Will you save him? Abraham doesn't attempt another last-minute rescue on horseback with his men like he did before, risking life and limb for his nephew Lot. He lets him go, and he watches the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, presumably seeing his own flesh and blood dying. I think what's interesting is Abraham stops at 10, and the way the text is presented, it makes it seem like he, he could have kept going. God doesn't stop him. He stops himself. He shuts up. God sees that Abraham's closed his argument, and he walks off. And I wonder, I wondered, how far could he have gone? How much further could he have pleaded with the Lord? Contrastly, Lot uses the word naw, please, every single time with an appeal to mercy. God, he says... Please, your servant has found favor, mercy, grace in your eyes. And you've shown great kindness to me. I can't do this thing. Would you please help me? It's a fascinating difference. It's subtle and it's easy to mix. Abraham appeals to justice and Lot appeals to mercy. Which is stronger? Which is more effective? That's well, a bit of a trick question, because here's what's unique. Although Abraham doesn't save a city, Abraham gets what he asked for. Abraham does not fail in his plea. There was not ten righteous found in the city, and it was destroyed. They both succeed in their pleas to God, the plea to justice and the plea to mercy, but one results in salvation, and the other results in destruction. 
This is fascinating. I, I mean, it, it's... Again, I, and, and there's a part of me that's like almost angry with Abraham. I'm like, could you have kept going? I mean, how far could he have gone? Five, four, three, two, one? I mean, could he have simply said, just save the city for my sake? Just do this for me as a favor. They have no claim. They have no right. They are exceedingly wicked, but just save them. Would God have said yes? I think so. Remember, who is that promised seed? It's not Isaac. I mean, it comes through Isaac, but it's not Isaac. It's Jesus. Jesus is that promised seed that would come through the line of Abraham, that through whom all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. And as he is dying on the cross, the only righteous man, he prays to the Father, forgive them. Forgive them. He appeals to mercy. And it's effective. And his appeal to mercy not only saves a city, but it saves us all. Now, what I want to be clear on here, God is a God of justice. And he is also a God of mercy. And I think often we see these as competing ideas, but I think what we're seeing in this story is God redefining and refining our sense of what justice is through his acts of mercy. I mean, look at the statement that Jesus says when he is tacked. He's sitting at a table. Again, this radical transformation of hospitality. He's sitting at a table with notorious sinners, and the righteous, the Pharisees, show up and begin to attack him. What are you doing? Which is to say, why are you associating yourself? Not just associating yourself, but bringing yourself under the household of a sinner, to be found as the same as a family with these sinners. This is unjust. And Jesus replies to them, God desires mercy, not sacrifice. Sacrifice was the system of these people to procure for them justice, right standing. They did the right thing so they could be right with God, and yet he says God desires mercy, not sacrifice. See, I think the justice of the Lord is the grace of the Lord. What is just in his eyes is that all the wicked would be saved for the sake of one righteous man, for the sake of Jesus Christ. And in some ways, honestly, that's unjust. Sodom is pretty freaking wicked. I mean, that idea is played out on and on and on again. In fact, we get to Ezekiel, and they are kind of given as this great example of God's wickedness. But what's interesting there is he's using it to expose the sin of Israel. He says to them in chapter 16 of Ezekiel, Oh, but your sister Sodom, you're worse than she is. And Ezekiel names the sin of Sodom as the fact that they had pride and they had great possessions and they kept eating to the fullness of who they were, but denied helping the needy and the stranger. What was the sin of Sodom? We saw it clearly, right? In hospitality. Which is to say, they didn't extend grace. Hospitality is an act 
of grace. It's the stranger, the other, the enemy who has done nothing to earn a rightful position in your home as one of your family members, to the place where you would offer your daughter in their stead. They have done nothing to earn that. There is no justice in that, but it is full of grace and mercy. The people of Sodom denied that grace, and that was their sin. Jesus drives us home in his teachings as he sends his disciples out into the uh, villages to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. He says, if anyone does not welcome you, bring you in in an act of hospitality, it will be worse for them than for Sodom on the day of judgment. Again, lumping them together, the sin of inhospitality, which is really, really ironic. Fred Phelps, who I talked about earlier, would often use this passage as a weapon in his pickets at the funerals of the LGBTQ. He would call them sodomites, meaning that they were the people of Sodom. In his eyes and his estimation, the sin of Sodom wasn't the lack and denial of grace, the lack of hospitality, the pride in which they kept for themselves and withheld from others, but the fact that they were attracted to men, that men were attracted to men. I totally missed the whole point of what's happening here. There's something far greater. And so here he is calling these people Sodomites. But what is he doing? He's committing the sin of Sodom. He's the inhospitable one. He's the one seeking justice over mercy. He is the one denying the love of God to these people. And one of the most transformative things I've ever seen is that Fred Phelps died a few years ago. And there were picketers at his funeral, representatives of uh, several different LGBTQ communities. And they held up signs that said something transformational, something hospitable, something that spoke to the deep mercy that God desires of us all. They held up signs that says, God loves Fred Phelps. <laughs> I mean, it, I think that stirs us all in some way. And I think ultimately that's the, the litmus test of our faithfulness to Christ. Are we stirred to mercy or are we stirred to justice? I think in some ways the, the taboo-ness around dancing on the graves of others who have died, I hope and I pray is a part of the reality that the Spirit is at work within us to say, Mercy's better. Mercy is better. And I think that this is what we're beginning to see in the new creation. We talked about this context, this big overarching understanding of what is happening in Genesis and what is happening now. And in Genesis, there is a different understanding. I think Abraham is well-intentioned. I didn't mean to play him out to be just this bad guy. I mean, obviously, the story continues with Abraham. He will later be and as presented as a hero of faith. Lot's story goes even further south. He ends up intoxicated by his daughters in a cave and impregnates them. I mean, it's, the story gets crazy. Again, if we're reading Genesis, we're reminded that sounds a lot like Noah, who after saving the world, finds himself drunk and naked and uh, shamed in front of his own children. And their descendants experience curse from that act. There's these repetitions, these understandings of fall. But 
like I said, Abraham's not necessarily the bad guy. I think he's well-intentioned. I think, though, he's again limited in his faith. He gets to 10 and thinks, there's no way that God would go lower. I don't think he stops because he's got a hard heart. He hates these people. He can't wait to dance on their grave. I think he stops there because he doesn't have the vision of how far God's grace will extend. I think that's why the Pharisees attack Jesus, because they don't see how far the grace of the Lord could possibly extend. They're well-intentioned. They're seeking the righteousness and justice of God. And yet they're blind that mercy is greater. They're blind to the fact that the justice of God is the mercy of God. And that is the story of the new creation, that Christ would forgive the very people who crucified him, that he would practice the the art of transformational hospitality by welcoming all of us, all the families of the earth, to his table, to come under his protection, to be of the same value to him as his own family. And that, that is the hope of the new creation. And it's what God has called us to and to live like right now right here, is open our tables to be places of transformation, but more than that, to be places of grace and mercy. Will you seek the greater? Will you desire with God mercy? And open your tables to be places of transformation, healing, and love. I pray, I pray that the Spirit empowers us to say yes, yes, and yes. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are revealing to us the depth of your goodness. God, I think we come to these stories and we expect justice. We expect an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We expect the bad people to get theirs. And yet you birthed in us You planted a seed deep within us through your spirit for mercy to take root, to look on the wicked and to look at the wickedness inside of ourselves and to join our voices with Lot saying, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. And God, we glory in the fact that you are just and righteous to answer that prayer. God, thank you that you answered Jesus' prayer. Thank you that you have forgiven us. Christ, who is in the position to condemn, loves us, died for us, rose again for us, and intercedes, praying for us on our behalf, always and forever. May we live in the comfort of that reality and truth and offer the grace to others that you have so freely given and continue to give over and over. We pray these things for your glory and praise in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening to Setting the Table, a podcast from the Table Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Little Rock. Setting the Table is available on iTunes and your favorite podcast apps. You can learn more about us at thetablelittlerock.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at thetablelr. And we'd love to have you join us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at Red and Blue, Arkansas, in downtown Little Rock. 
Our address is 1415 West 7th Street. Come, taste and see that the Lord is good. Thank you.